High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Welcome to This Week in Retro for the week of February 15th. Coming up on today's show. The Andy Warhol Museum Amiga exhibit. Sayonara Kawasaki. Pour one out for Tapper. And C64 Hidden Gems. All this and more, plus our community question of the week on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. John, before we fly into our first story, a quick correction. We like to be as accurate as possible on this show. And unfortunately, there was a moment when I wasn't last week, John. <laughs> you uh, <laughs> you asked me a question. It was on the subject of the RetroArch um, front end and its relation to the mister on the roadmap. And I, you asked me, um, does the front end support the FPGA cores or not? And, and I thought it did. But actually, on further investigation this week, RetroArch on the mister completely ignores the FPGA chip and uses the ARM chip for its own cores. So just wanted to clear that up. And uh, it makes it all the more interesting really because it means you're getting that software emulation to go side by side with the FPGA cores for systems that perhaps aren't supported yet in FPGA. So kind of makes sense, kind of makes mm -hmm. sense. I just wanted yeah, to clear yeah. that up. It'll be interesting to see how those uh, the performance of each runs side by side, which I'm sure we're going to see a lot of comparison, uh, you know, videos with that in the future. Yeah, and one other piece of business I thought I'd mention before we go into the first story is I just saw an update from the Eight Bit Guy. Everyone knows the Eight Bit Guy who loves retro. Uh, he's in Texas, where you are being hit by those terrible snowstorms at the moment, aren't you? And yeah. um, uh, he, he mentioned that he's lost power, his house is flooded, and he's completely out of action. So I just wanted to wish him the best of luck from the show, really, and getting back up on his feet. He'll be offline from YouTube for a few weeks, and hopefully he's up and running soon. Absolutely. All right, Neil, let's kick things off with a story about one of the best machines of all time. Of course, the Amiga. Without a doubt, one of the highlights of the grand unveiling of the Amiga in 1985 was uh, over at Lincoln Center, where you have uh, Andy Warhol live on stage painting the lead singer of Blondie, Debbie Harry. This was the first time a legitimate artist was ever called upon to create something with a computer in real time while the world looked on. So using the software ProPaint, Warhol went on to create more images with the Amiga, including Botticelli's The Birth of Venus, a self-portrait, and his famous can of Campbell's Soup. Now, Neil is a big fan of the Amiga and is an Amiga gamer. I know you were an Amiga gamer. Did you ever dip your toe into the more artistic waters? Uh, yes, I did. I loved getting creative with my Amiga. It's one of the things that set the machine apart for me from my console-owning friends to be able to do that kind of thing. So I played with Deluxe Paint, Photon Paint. There was a Disney one, Disney Paint Studio, something like that. I, I tried them all out, usually as demos that came on cover discs. I really invested in the full package, or Deluxe Paint often came bundled with your Amiga. So, you know, I had that. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. And there was also one called Fantavision. I don't know if you ever had Fantavision. That was an art package no. that was, it, it was vector-based. So I guess the modern day equivalent would be something like Illustrator, uh, Adobe Illustrator, and it included an animation feature. So because your drawings comprised of a series of X and Y coordinates, instead of being bitmap images, it made them really, really memory efficient and easy to scale and rotate and things like that. So you could create really quite long and complex animations with a very limited amount of RAM uh, and I really enjoyed playing with that one. So Fantavision was a lot of fun. I think it was on other systems. It might have even been on the C64 going back further. 
Um, hmm. But it was it was a good good package. So yes, I did enjoy it. And just by coincidence, John, um, you mentioned that launch event of the Amiga 1000. I had a short interview with Gail Wellington last week, who was a Commodore employee at the time. I think she was working on the Commodore Amiga technical support team, also known as CATS. And she was at the launch event of the Amiga 1000 over there. Now, I wasn't talking to her about this specifically. I was interviewing her about the CDTV for a series that I'm making at the moment. But she did say of the A1000 launch event, <clears throat> she said, at least I wasn't in charge of Warhol. <laughs> so <laughs> didn't go into any detail. I must go back to her and interview her about the event specifically for the Amiga 1000. But I think it's safe to, to, to assume he was perhaps a bit of a handful, John. Have, have you heard any stories about that? Well, you know, I, I think all true artists are a bit of a handful, Neil. I mean, you've seen my rider. You know what my demands are for this show. You, got, you, you take out the brown M&Ms. But at least, you know, in my reading about Andy, uh, I haven't seen anything that leads me to believe he was anything other than, well, just kind of odd. Um, but being the huge fan of art history that I am, when I saw Control-Alt-Reese suggest this particular story to us on the subreddit, I knew I had to dig in and find out some more. So... It appears that Ion Tank, which is a design studio that specializes in interactive art installations, is gearing up to produce a new Amiga exhibit featuring the work of Andy Warhol. So some of our listeners might not know that Warhol originally envisioned these works to be printed and published in a book, but for various reasons that never came to pass. So this new exhibit will give viewers a chance to see the images just as Warhol saw them on an Amiga 1000. So, how did they do this? Well, the answer may shock you, so look away if you're squeamish. Uh, according to Ion Tank's write-up, they've taken uh, a quote-unquote decommissioned Amiga 1000 and gutted it and uh, fitted it with, uh, again, they, they quote, I quote, solid state hardware, which I can only assume means a Raspberry Pi or some sort of an FPGA solution that emulated the Amiga. Uh, care has also been taken to ensure that the power light on the front of the system continues to function as normal, and the mouse and keyboard have also been retrofitted to work with this new internal hardware. But that's not all. Uh, the iconic Amiga-branded 1084 is also present, but again, it's been totally gutted and replaced with an LCD monitor, though they do write about the curved glass enclosure that sits in front of it to give it a more CRT feel. Now, here is the question, Neil. I know that you're a big fan of hardware restoration. Uh, you're sort of the opposite of the uh, decommissioning <laughs> mentioned in the article. You're, you're all about the recommissioning. And most of the time, you take great pains to leave parts as they are. Or if you do any modifications, you make them reversible to uh, preserve the integrity of the original machine. So what do you think, they've, uh, what do you think of what they've done to this uh, precious Amiga 1000? Yeah, it, it's a hot topic, isn't it? And it's one that's been spoken about for some time since they first showed pictures of this Amiga 1000 a while back. I wouldn't mm -hmm. be surprised if this company's been using it a little bit shrewdly to, to stir up some, some chatter and some activity from a marketing perspective. I think they have, you know, <laughs> because mm -hmm. I don't think us techies are really the, the first people that they're aiming this art exhibition at. I right. think they're, they're perhaps using some of us quite well to spread the word of the exhibition. <laughs> but, um, hey, it's working. We're talking about it. It's so. working. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And uh, there are two ways of looking at this, John. I think first is from the perspective of, of an art exhibition. And they want to show off the art to hundreds of thousands of people day in, day out without 
having a big out of order sign over an installation that people they may have traveled hours or even days to come and see so i get why they've looked for a solution that helps them to fulfill the guest experience that they want to deliver without problems but on the other hand and this is before we even go into the the vintage computer preservation angle on the other hand what you're doing here is you're really changing the medium on which the art is presented um you know if you had say like a, a claude monet painting and you wanted to present a facsimile of that painting in your museum you'd go out of your way to ensure that the canvas was as close as possible to the original that the paint was applied in the same way you'd effectively want to create the perfect forgery of a painting to proudly hang center stage and for all to see and if you didn't do that art critics and museum critics would give you a scathing review you know they'd want it to be perfect and as a visitor I'd expect the experience to be as authentic as possible even in the knowledge that it wasn't the original that I was looking at I'd want it to be as authentic as possible and the advantage of something like this digital art that Warhol created is that you are looking at the original you're looking at the original ones and zeros no matter how many times it's copied it's still exact it's precise and perfect to the original the only thing that changes to make it less original is how your eyeballs are seeing it compared to how the artist saw it and that is what they're changing here um, you know by changing the CRT monitor to a modern monitor and putting a lens over it they're effectively changing the canvas and does that matter to you as a person going to see that piece of art that's a question you've got to ask yourself really that's not a question I can answer for you but that is the fundamental change to what you're seeing I think um, and then coming back to the preservation and the technical point of view um, you know computers that run it are available Amiga 1000s are available you can go out and buy them CRT monitors are available yes you will need technicians to go with them I would have liked for them to have a bunch of spares that they can quickly rotate if they need to and some technicians so that they can present that art honestly and, and on an original monitor but I get it I get it there's costs involved there's people involved it's 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 a difficult balance isn't it um, yeah yeah it really you know, is so if you want the technical hassle of running the original hardware then then that's the per that's the ideal situation if you want a halfway house you could use a Pi or a mister and you could still plug that into the original CRT to have you know the scan lines and have the display looking the same and have the proper canvas as, as I've described it to display the art on you know I want to justify what they've done because it comes from a good place I really think it does and that place is to share the art with the world but when I've seen what they've done to that Amiga yes I do die a little bit inside um, just because I love computers I love Amigas 1000s and they're such an important machine to me that I, I don't like seeing them be destroyed like that but I get it I get it John I'm, I'm probably not as angry as you think I might get about this hmm. mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah <laughs> well you know I think it needs to be said that there is a significant difference between an art a traditional art exhibit and this Warhol exhibit. I mean, uh, unlike digital files, which are uh, designed to be copied in mass without losing integrity, paintings by their very nature have this physical providence about them. You know, and it, if you look at why paintings are actually valuable, because things like forgeries are so good these days, the way that a painting gets its value is by its providence. You, you go over the record of, of who's bought it, who's owned it, who sold it over the 250 years since it was painted or whatever. So um, 
unlike a Monet exhibit, you know, which I, maybe there are exhibits where, you know, paintings are recreated, like like you said, but I've, I've never heard of one before. Most of the time, you know, traveling exhibits, if, if they want to be successful, they'll they'll contain, you know, the, the original artworks or they, they won't exist at all. Um, this, uh, there's, nobody's claiming that the, the A1000 that is before them is actually the one that, that Andy used when he sure. was making these images. Likewise, the, 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 there's no, the, the original flop discs all that stuff there's there's none of that so um but on the preservation angle I, you know i'm a little bit more split i think too uh on the one hand I, I do want these machines to live forever in more or less their original state but on the other hand as you said this is a traveling museum and these machines are going to get set up and taken down over and over again and moved about possibly quite roughly um, you know, the people that are handling these machines might not be, uh, you know, technicians, as, as you pointed out. Um, also, uh, these mu these machines are going to be handled by tons and tons of people who are used to modern computers. You know, they're not going to want to wait for, you know, the thinking bubble to go away before they start clicking on things. And you know as well as I do, when you start clicking like mad on an Amiga 1000, uh, things happen. <laughs> a lot of times, it's, they, aren't, they aren't good things. So you can end up with, you know, wiped hard drive by mistake, corrupted files or at the very least, just a suboptimal user experience. So I do applaud the exhibitors for at least making the computers usable in the exhibit and not just scrolling through images. You know, yeah. the easy way out would just be to put up the computer, make a slideshow program and have the images going. So it, it's neat that they're inviting people to step up and use the computer it was originally as it was originally created. Um, I just hope that the 1000s that they did use were ir irreparably damaged and uh, were headed for the scrap heap anyway. Uh, it's tough because, like it or not, people just view vintage electronics differently than artwork. And to many people, a computer is just the shell. You know, when they think about an Apple II, they don't think about all of the circuitry that's inside of it. They think about that that plastic shell that they remember from when they were a kid. And if there's a way to make that shell work better than it used to, heck, you know, they're all for it. So. I can see that. Those of us in the arcade machine collector space have been having these arguments for years. I mean, do you take the CRT out and replace it with an LCD? Do you paint over the damaged original artwork? Do you put on your, your own custom artwork? In my opinion, when the machine is yours, you have the right to do whatever you want with it. You know, whatever makes you happy. And people that don't like what you're doing with it can keep their own collections in whatever state that gives them the most pleasure. So... <laughs> If you want to check out the details of how this exhibit came about and what changes have been made to the Amiga 1000 in question, check out the link to the story in the show notes. Our next story was submitted by the poetically named Reddit user, It's an Arse. <laughs> he uh, takes us on a trip this week to the Kawasaki Warehouse Arcade in Japan, or at least where it used to stand. It's a sad tale, I'm afraid. An arcade what I'd probably call a second generation arcade because it opened in 2005. So it doesn't go back to the, to the 80s or the 70s. And um, what made this arcade so popular is its utterly bizarre interior design. It, it's just completely insane. I, I'm afraid if I look at too many pictures of it, it might influence my interior design decisions here at the cave as I do it <laughs> up. It's, uh, it's a troubling thing. But um, you've got to take a look at these. Do, do look at the link in the show notes to see these pictures. I describe the interior as sort of a cross between Blade Runner, uh, Big Trouble in Little China, if you've, if you've seen that film, 
stages from Mortal Kombat. <laughs> it's a real eclectic mix and it, it's quite difficult to describe. So go and have a look at the pictures. But um, this arcade was spread over five stories and um, apparently it's based on a very worn down version of the Kowloon Walled City in Hong Kong. Now, I'm not familiar with this city, um, the city that it's based on, but I can see from the pictures that even though you go indoors in this arcade, it's like a, a skyscraper, if you like, that you go indoors, um, it, it's themed to look like a cityscape with the sky high above you, power lines over you, neon signs up high. It's, it's really quite spectacular. Um, you're more familiar with that part of the world than I am, John. Do you know about the Kowloon Walled City? Have you heard of that? No, this is no. this is something you know. I I had the opportunity to actually visit this. I went to Japan in uh, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, somewhere mm -hmm. around there. I can't remember. It's been so long, but uh, I I didn't visit this particular arcade in question, and I'm sort of sorry that I didn't. Now that I hear you describe it, yeah, yeah. And and against this backdrop of this um, worn out city inside a building is a collection of classic and modern arcade machines. So of course it's full of candy cabs that are so popular in modern arcades, but also games like Gauntlet, Space Harrier, Outrun, Shinobi, all of the classics can be seen in there um, with a bit of Google image searching. Actually, there's some YouTube videos as well of people who filmed tours of the place while it was still open. So they're worth a look as well. And um, that's the only way you'll see it now is if you Google or YouTube search it, because in November 2019, it was closed down allegedly due to a dispute with the landlord over over a, something to do with the contract. It's not really clear why it closed, but it has just reopened, hence the story posting, as a car park. <laughs> it's it's sad. <laughs> so it looks like they've kept a lot of the theming in the car park. So it's a pretty cool car park. But, <laughs> you but, can be you can be entertained as you pull your car in. So. But no no arcade machines. And it is sad to see mm. such an iconic venue end up like this. Um, yeah, but it's a good lead into a question I wanted to ask you, John, it, it is, was there an arcade of choice that you went to back in the day? You know, I'm talking first generation arcades. Do you have any American memories that you can share with us of the arcades? I, unfortunately, I don't, Neil. I, I, I never went to arcades when I was growing up. And I'm talking about when I was in my, you know, in my early adolescence, when I was, say, eight to 15. Uh, I just, I never went to them. When I was a boy, arcades were dimly lit. Uh, they were full of cigarette smoke and uh, they contained uh, lots of uh, gangs of ruffians, at least in my mind they did. I was afraid. I was afraid to enter the arcade uh, because I was just sort of a loser. But uh, <laughs> instead, most of my arcade experience was done at the bowling alley, which Actually, now that I think about it, it, was also dimly lit and full of cigarette smoke. So <laughs> I guess most places were in the 80s, Neil. But uh, our local roller skating rink, the Skate Arena, also had a couple games they would rotate in and out. So I, I did some gaming there. But I've got to admit, I was tardy to the party when it came to classic arcade games. I, I discovered most of them on MAME, and uh, I've only played them in their original upright versions in recent years in places like the Galloping Ghost in Chicago or, as I just mentioned, the arcade trips that I took. Uh, to Japan in the late 2000s. What about you, Neil? What are your arcade memories? Yeah, you've just reminded me actually of the, the skate park, um, so the ice skating rink near me. Uh, there used to be a good thunder, a sitting Thunderblade cabinet there. Mm. I'd completely forgotten about that one. Anyway, I grew up um, near a seaside town called Weymouth on the south coast of the UK. And seasides are traditionally where you'd find the arcades in the UK. Yeah, we, we didn't have Disneyland. We had a bucket and a spade. We had aggressive seagulls and we had an ice, <laughs> ice cold sea to dip our toes in. So having arcades near the sea was the perfect position for us to dive in and warm up and, and spend our money. And um, 
What amazes me to this day is just how vividly I can remember those arcades, even the ones way back when I was too young to operate them without standing on a chair, you know? And I wonder if that's the same for our listeners out there, if my young brain is like yours, because it was so mesmerized by the attract sounds and the sights of the arcades. I, I think they just burned into my brain for life. And um, mm. I'm sure there are more out there who have a similar experience to me. I'd, I'd like to hear if, if that's you from our listeners. One of my favorites was Butlin's Holiday Park, which was uh, the seaside town of Minehead. It was a real special treat to go to Butlin's. That was like the family holiday for a long weekend or a week. Mm -hmm. And um, this had, had a dedicated arcade in it, but it also had various cabinets dotted around the park. So I knew wherever I went on that park, there'd be something to spot. And for good measure, there was also a shop that sold games on cassette for my Amstrad CPC. So I had it all covered at this holiday park. It was brilliant. But... Um, if I close my eyes and just think about Butlins, I can see um, I can see Dragon's Lair, I can see Spy Hunter, I can see The Empire Strikes Back, all of those arcade games exactly where they were. I could I could sit down and I could draw exactly where they all were for you. And we also had that crazy rifle game. Um, I don't know if you had this over there. Uh, tell me if you did, but it was like a big display of hillbillies and targets. This isn't a video game, by the way. It's like a physical, big physical set. And you'd shoot the targets with the rifle and stupid things would happen, like the toilet door would fly open and a, a guy would shout at you to close it again. Did, did you have that over there? Neil, I didn't just play that game. I lived it. Remember, I'm in West Virginia. <laughs> I'm in the land of the hillbillies. <laughs> the Hatfields and McCoys were literally in my backyard. So, um, But in most, we, we did have some of those games. In, in fact, we, we continue to still have these live target games. Uh, they can, they're most often found in major sporting goods stores here in the States. Uh, okay. They'll have a huge diorama in the middle of the store uh, of several different outdoor scenes and there'll be hunting rifles you know uh like laser rifles that are that are attached to various places around the diorama and you actually shoot at targets uh you know of the in your i don't i, I don't think you're actually shooting at the animals i think that they they, they, they that would be a step too far but you're you're shooting at things near the animals <laughs> and anyway in a state that's as big as uh as hunting is in west virginia um the, these things are unbelievably popular so uh, if you ever visit West Virginia, make sure you check out a sporting goods store and you can relive that hillbilly memory, Neil. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember if you specifically had that hillbilly one where they came out of the toilets? And no, no. I, 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 it, hillbillies coming out of the toilets is, is just that's just everyday life for me. So oh, <laughs> I, I was kind of hoping that, that it was reversed over there in the U.S. and you had sort of like a, a Victorian England diorama where someone oh. sort of came out. Leave me alone. I'm on the toilet if you shot them. That now, sort of that, thing. That, <laughs> that, that's an opportunity to make some money right there, Neil. I may, I may need to investigate that. <laughs> so anyway, we had that in the arcades. Um, and then in this holiday park, you know, wherever I went, if I queued to get in the water park there, there was an Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. In the evening entertainment venue, there was Skate or Die. There was Gauntlet. There was an upright outrun cabinet. Like I say, I don't know why I can remember all of this so vividly, but um, you know, when I can't remember what I had for dinner last night, I, I don't know. But it clearly made a huge impression on me. And um, just like the Kawasaki Arcade, they're all gone now. But Butlin still exists, but it's not full of arcade machines like it used to be. And they only live on in our memories, which is kind of sad. Mm. And it's one of the reasons why I dream someday of, of creating my own arcade here in the cave. So I'd like to do that, you know. Dream big, John. Oh, yeah. Dream big. Maybe one day. It's a bit of a dream, but you never know. And um, perhaps in the spirit of this story, we can set this week's community question to be to ask people, 
What was your favorite arcade back in the day? And what do you remember about it? Now, Neil, I know you spent a lot of time in the arcade as a lad, as we just got to talk about. But how much serious pub time did you put it? Did you put in during your later <laughs> teenage years? Well, uh, British culture being as, as it is, especially then, was and is very pub oriented, John. Um, to the degree where my dad was a, a local policeman in the town where I grew up and the police station had a pub in it. Wow. <laughs> and, and guess... <laughs> And guess what? It also had Moon Buggy and Popeye and, and Silkworm arcade games. Yes, I remember all of those cabinets too. Um, so they were all in the arcade in the um, in the police station, and we were actively encouraged to go and hang out at the pub in the police station. Uh, mm. We didn't we didn't stand a chance of not getting sucked into that teenage pub and drinking culture of the UK. It was practically the law, John, to do it, <laughs> based on my experience. <laughs> How about you? Were you were you downing bottles of kiwi fruit flavored Mad Dog Twenty Twenty on the park benches as a teenager? Oh, I wish, Neil. I wish. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> as you know, the drinking age is quite a bit higher uh, here. Uh, than in the UK. That doesn't, of course, stop many people from drinking, but it, it certainly stopped me. Uh, so most students not named McLovin uh, don't do much drinking in pubs or, or bars, as we call them, until they're almost out of college. Of course, you know, that, like I said, that, that doesn't stop a lot of people, but at least drinking in the pub, uh, you know, where somebody's pouring you a drink, uh, that doesn't happen until you're much older. So I, I do remember fondly, well, Maybe fondly isn't the correct word. Uh, my, my 21st birthday party, which I spent in a bar, uh, I was playing trombone in the pit orchestra of a, of a production of the Broadway musical Damn Yankees, Neil. And I, after the show that night, the cast took me out. They knew it was my, my 21st birthday and they were going to show me a good time. That night, I became familiar with the flaming Dr. Pepper. Do you know what that is, Neil? <laughs> There's a lot to process there, John, in that last paragraph. Um, no, I don't know what that is. Please explain. Well, well I don't really know either. Um, all I know is that the bartender, he, he pours several shots into a glass. Then you light the whole thing on fire. Then you drop the shot into a beer. And then you drink it as quickly as possible. And supposedly it tastes like Dr. Pepper. I, I think it did. But, you know, after six or seven, it was really hard to tell. So anyway, that was that was sort of my initiation into the pub world. Yeah, it sounds, sounds a bit like uh, a flaming Sambuca, which I'm sure mm. you've had over there as well. Yeah. First time I tried that, um, I didn't really anticipate how you're supposed to tackle a drink that's on fire. And uh, I somehow managed <laughs> to choke on it while I tried to drink it coughed and instead of safely extinguishing it and, and swallowing it <laughs> i set my mate's girlfriend on fire <laughs> i coughed the flaming sambuca on her she wasn't happy but uh, thankfully she was unharmed john <laughs> mm -hmm. lessons learned lessons learned indeed so now I, I think it's somewhat ironic that especially in gaming's early days and like you said uh arcade games could be found inside the bar proper even inside the pub and a police station so after after all the first pong machine was famously installed inside andy capp's tavern in sunnyvale california but there aren't many situations where you have the, the reverse where you have uh, arcade games set in a bar uh, of course the exception to this rule is tapper for those who haven't played tapper imagine a set of four long bars stretching across uh, the screen horizontally with endless rows of patrons marching across the floor in front of them demanding booze and tapper it's your job as the bartender to slide brewskis down the bar before they reach the end and uh, and 
they once they get to the end, if you don't serve them, they actually slide you back down the bar in the other direction, uh, which leads to your destruction. Now, uh, do I remember hmm. this correctly? Was this game sponsored by Budweiser? You are correct, Neil. Ah, the, okay. the original version was sponsored by the brewing titans Anheuser-Busch. Purveyors of multiple types of American swell, including Budweiser. They're they're the dirt worst. But there was also a non-alcoholic version for the kids known as Root Beer Tapper. And bizarrely, in the 90s, a third version appeared in Japan with the Suntory logo, which is the you know the famous brewery uh, on in, in Japan, on some boards manufactured by Sega. Sega denies all involvement of being uh, being a, a party to this, but um, the, it's I think that they probably were. They just wanted to they didn't want it to be known because this this was a game that was developed in the states by Bally Midway. Now um, this is this game is great. I love Tapper. It's it's fun to play through an emulator, but the best way to play it by far, and this is a way that I did it for the first time when I was in Chicago at the Galloping Ghost, is its original arcade edition, which features both an actual tap that you pull to pour those virtual drinks and a rail to rest your feet on. When you you know you pull up a bar stool in the machine, you put your feet on the rail, you really feel like you're you're entering the environment. Uh, but if you don't have a big stack of money to spend on the real deal, and this is one of the most expensive arcade machines you can buy just because of all those accoutrements, uh, there is a new version of Tapper in development that you can play at home with something you might already have. It's coming, Neil, to the ZX Spectrum. Ooh. Now, some of you disciples of Sir Clive out there might know that back in the day, Tapper did get a port for the Speccy. It was by US Gold, and yes, it was awful. Uh, the new edition by Gabrielle Amore, I think is how you say the name, uh, and originally reported on by Indie Retro News, improves upon the original Tapper in every way. Uh, through clever coding, all the character sprites are now multicolored and the action is much, much faster. I looked at these things back to back and there was no contest. The only thing left to fix is the music which uh, even by 48K Spectrum standards on the original version was pretty insufferable. Uh, Neil, did you play the OG Specky version back in the day? And what do you think of the footage of this new game in development? Um, I didn't actually play it back in the day. The only pub-based pub -based game I can think of that I've played back in the day was 180 or 180, which was a darts game. Um, I didn't get to see a real Tapper arcade machine in any of the arcades I went on. And, and the way you describe it, it sounds really fun. And I didn't actually play the game until I fired it up many years later on MAME. And it is a fun game to play, um, even without those controls. But I feel like I'm missing out a little bit now, now that you've described it. I feel like I've been playing Chase HQ or OutRun with a joystick instead of a steering wheel. So yeah, I'd yeah. really like to try it with the beer tap and the stool and everything. But um, that being said, it didn't seem to hinder the gameplay But when I played it with the joystick. So... I'm sure it will port just fine to the ZX Spectrum. And yeah, as, as you say, it looks really good from the footage I've seen of it. it. It runs very swiftly. And compared to the original, it is a big improvement. Yeah, yeah. And if Tapper isn't enough pub action for you, and if you don't mind working a little blue, uh, be sure and check out Bar Games for the Amiga. Neil, did you ever play Bar Games for the Amiga? I didn't play Bar Games, no. What did I miss there? Well, in addition to serving beer to the inebriated, uh, there's a mini game where you can pick up women in uh, probably one of the, the 
<laughs> one of the cheesiest worst scenes <laughs> of all time and uh you can play the never popular pub game liar's dice uh it's a it's 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 certainly a sight to behold just make sure that there's no kids around there is a wet t-shirt contest also involved in this game it's not for the utes as they say but who knows maybe that's next on the list for a specky port i'm downloading it now (laughs) john we had a chat last week about games master and video game shows on the television well this week i want to talk about a fun new youtube series submitted to the subreddit by pajaco 6502 because let's be honest youtube is where it's at for all the good retro content these days isn't it oh yeah Remember to like and subscribe if you're watching now on YouTube. <laughs> this particular video is by Old Style Gaming or OSG and his, it's his top hidden gems on the Commodore 64. Games he defines as being less well known while delivering a great gaming experience. Now the C64 has a pretty big software library so I'm expecting some real treats in this series of videos. The first starting with the letter A, he's gonna work his way through the alphabet and he has got as far as the letter R. So each day or every about every other day he's releasing a new video with a new letter um but he hasn't quite finished it yet he's got as far as ours and now's a good time to get on board and watch it john have you seen this particular video we're on the uh the letter a is the one that's linked on the show notes and are there any hidden gems there that you were familiar with or unexpected surprises yeah, yeah, I had a look at this, and uh, you know, one game that I didn't even realize got a game adaptation for a movie was Arachnophobia. Of course, this is, I think this came out sometime in the early 90s, was a, was a minor hit in the theaters, um, and uh, it looked really neat. It looked like a, a fun spin on the game. It, it had a split-screen view, kind of like Spy versus Spy or Xenophobe or something like that, and you're basically roaming around a house with a bunch of spiders, so I'm going to have to check that one out. Uh, what, what about you, Neil? What stood out for you? Mm, that one did stand out. Um, OSG described that one as being well worth a play. He said it doesn't really mix up the gameplay. So once you've played it once, you've, you've played it once. And, you, you know, once you've completed it, you've, do, you've done everything there is to do. But it's still well mm. worth a play. So that arachnophobia looks good. I really liked a really simple one that was called Arctic Shipwreck, which is a really old one, 1983. It was released by Commodore. And all it is is you're a woolly mammoth on a 3D iceberg that's tipping and tilting with shipwrecked survivors on it. And you have to run around as a mammoth on the iceberg to counterbalance the motion of the iceberg and stop the survivors from sliding off until the ship arrives to pick them up. So a really simple but fun game, as a lot of those very early Commodore games were. Um, Mm. So that was good. And then there was another one on there, which was Another World, which is, I think it's based on the arcade cabinet. Um, No, I'm confusing that with Forgotten Worlds, aren't I? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think it's an original game for the C64 then. It's called Another World. It's nothing to do with the rotoscoped adventure that we had on the Amiga, but it, it just scrolls in a silky smooth way. It's a side scrolling shoot 'em up. It looks like a lot of fun. So that's one I want to check out. Now, if I remember correctly, in this era, in the 8 bit era, you were um, a Nintendo NES owner. Is that right, yeah. John? Yeah. That's yeah. right. That's right. Would you have traded that in for a C64? Not in a million years. <laughs> um, you know, they're, they're, this is one of those questions that, shall we say, touches a nerve when you uh, when you when you when you bring it up. Uh, you know, depending on what you grew up with, again, 
was there was there any Mario on the on the C sixty four way you had Gianna Sisters, which let's be honest, it is what it is, a uh, blatant ripoff. Uh there was no Zelda on the on the C sixty four. Um and these were the games that were part of my zeitgeist, you know, growing up. You know, I subscribed to Nintendo Power, all my friends at school had Nintendos. And so, you know, trading that in for a system that nobody I knew had, nobody I knew was playing the game, so you didn't have anybody to talk about with, you can't undersell the social importance of gaming for kids. You know, half of the fun of playing the game is the next day at school talking about it with your friends. Of course, these days, every, all the kids are playing their games online and they're talking to their friends in real time, but back in the day, that wasn't the case. So that reason alone would put me off getting one. But also, a lot of the best games for the C64 ended up getting better versions for the NES later on down the line. Why were they better versions? Well, game design moved forward. You know, in the 80s, every year was like 10 years, pretty much, when you're talking about game development. And being able to do things like adding contextual buttons in a game like the the ultimas that were ported to the nest really made them a lot more user friendly um the the ports of like the, a lot of the ea games like skate or die i know a lot of people prefer the sid music to the nes chip but the actual core game itself runs a lot better on the nes um so basically we got the best of both worlds you know we got all of the japanese developed games plus all of the best games for the c64 almost without exception made their way onto the NES in an upgraded format. They had to make them better because the, the NES was such a big hit, you know, they, they wanted to make their games as competitive as possible. So they, they had to add extra things. And I can't uh, I can't end my my answer without talking about just what I consider to be the dreadful C64 color palette. It looks like uh, you take like if you take some slime, some purple slime and some gray slime, <laughs> and you make a thin film and you plaster that like Vaseline over your screen over normal colors, <laughs> and that's what the C sixty four palette looks like. Just just awful. I, I've I've never been a fan, so I would never trade it. Uh, I, the C sixty four is fine, but it's got nothing on the nest. Now, let's throw it to you, Neil. Uh, you were an Amstrad CPC guy, if I remember, in the 8-bit era. Would you have traded that for a C64 if it was a straight swap? Oh, it's it's a tough question. And did I did I hear in your last answer you mentioned Ultima there? Did we get an Ultima mention yeah. in this week's show? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Take a drink, everybody. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I've got to say, I'm sorry to my fellow Amstrad lovers, but if I'm totally honest, I would make that swap. Uh, when, when a game is written to use the hardware-assisted sprites and the SID chip and all the bells and whistles and everything else the C64 had to offer, uh, I've got to be honest, it does walk all over the Amstrad when it's put to full effect. So um, I hate to throw my first love under the bus, but yeah, give, give me that C64. Uh, <laughs> and also, as an Amstrad owner, I, I suffered... Uh, a lot of poorly ported Spectrum games over to the Amstrad. Oh, yeah. Just because it was based on the same Z80 CPU, it was very easy mm -hmm. to port things over. But very little effort was often made to then enhance the games to take advantage of the little extras that the Amstrad had over the ZX Spectrum. So I suffered that in the opposite direction. You were saying C64 games were ported upwards to the NES mm -hmm. and you got a better experience. Um, you know, that wasn't always the case. I would argue, you used Ultima as an example, I would argue that Ultima 7 on the Super Nintendo is terrible compared to it on the PC. Um, so well, I, I, I think... Against. 
Yeah, I think that, that when you talk about Ultima set, I'm talking about the the Ultima games that appeared on the NES. Have you yeah. have you gone back and played any of those? Not on the NES, no. But um, See, I do you, know. You, but, Let's talk but, more yeah. about Ultima. Let's talk more about Ultima. <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I do know that Richard Garrett himself holds the Game Boy version of Ultima Five or Four. I can't remember which one it is as one of the best versions out there. So yeah, it can be done. It can be done. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we're celebrating the C64 here with OSG. <laughs> so um, he, he, he's nearly completed the alphabet of hidden gems. He's down to the letter R, as I mentioned. I'm looking forward to seeing the last few videos from him. Is there a game that you'd like to see for an upcoming letter as a hidden gem on the C64? Oh, you know, I'm not the person to ask about this because by the time that the gems get to me, they've already been fully mined and uncovered. Uh, I do hope that, you know, one game that always stands out to me is a game that I certainly hadn't heard of before we covered it on uh, one of our ARG present shows was uh, Forbidden Forest way back in the letter F's. Uh, this is a game that uh, I'd never heard of growing up. As far as I know, it didn't make its way onto any of the consoles, but it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, it's a game where you're an archer and there you, you it's, it's sort of an over-the-shoulder third-person sideways scroll. It's difficult to explain, but you make your way through a forest and you're, you're battling different creatures. There's a day-night cycle that's really cool, and it's got some excellent music. So that would be my, my pick for Hidden Gem on the C64. Mm -hmm. Well, my pick, um, I've mentioned on the show before, uh, as a um, uh, not a massively unknown game, but lesser known, and that's Space Taxi on the C64. And as S is the next game, the, the next video in the series to come out, I, I'm crossing my fingers and hoping to see Space Taxi on there, OSG, if you're listening. Um, I have to say, uh, on the A-list video, the number one game at the end of that video, I won't spoil it for you, but it really does look great. It's a game that I'd never seen before. And it's a game that I'm definitely going to go and check it out. So, so I won't spoil the surprise, but do go and check out the number one game on the A video. And um, then perhaps the rest of the series, as I'm going to do, because I haven't worked my way through all of them yet. Um, so thank you, OSG. Neil, this week's episode of This Week in Retro is sponsored by Retro Rewind, North America's number one stop for new hardware for your Commodore 64 and Amiga computer. This week, I thought we'd spotlight their Amiga RGB to HDMI adapter. Neil, getting a solid HDMI signal out of your Amiga has never been easier. Just pop your Denise chip up, put this bad boy on there, and then slide the, the Denise back on top. Then just add a Raspberry Pi Zero on top to do the heavy lifting, and away you go. And the best thing about it is the price, Neil. $40 plus a Pi Zero, which I believe is about 5 bucks. You combine this with the Buffy, and you're still under the price of a vampire. So this is just another option for all the Amiga fans out there. Yeah, you're, you're not just under the price of a vampire. You're massively under the price of a vampire. And um, I was really impressed when I saw this on their website, RetroRewind.ca. It's um, it's a really low cost alternative to even a scan doubler, which are quite hard to get hold of now for your Amigas. Even the modern ones are in short supply, and you're from a UK price, you're looking at 100 pounds or more for a, a decent scan doubler. So to find mm. something so cheap that can give you an HDMI output that just slots on so easily, you don't need any technical skills to install this. Um, it's a great find. I'm definitely going to be getting myself one. Yeah, yeah. So if you're looking for that or any kind of hardware from diagnostic equipment to this uh, RGB to HDMI adapter, be sure and head over to RetroRewind.ca slash TWIR. We thank RetroRewind for sponsoring This Week in Retro. Neil, it's time now for our community question of the week. What was the question this week, Neil? 
The question this week was, what is the worst video game you've ever purchased? All right, well, we're going to start things off with Shishkali. He says, Miami Mice on the Atari STE. Just terrible. Fred Schwartz says, it was some adventure game on the Atari 800, which seemingly had no end. I mean, it doesn't really narrow down what this game was, but there we go. Thank you, Fred. <laughs> Audio Collapse says, at this point in time, I was delivering newspapers and got a monthly paycheck from that. He spent around 81 US dollars in his own currency on Rise of the Robots for the Amigo. Oh, I'm sorry, Audio Collapse. <laughs> oh, That's no good. <laughs> Richard Shears says, Outrun on the Amstrad CPC 464. Oh, and Outrun on the Amiga as well. I honestly believe that they would have done a better job on the 16-bit Marvel. Boy, was I wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Pajaco6502 says, Dragon's Lair for the ZX Spectrum. He says, that's rock bottom and about 20 feet under. That is this. <laughs> I've never made it off the first level to this day. <laughs> Shackler says, it has to be crazy cars for the Commodore 64. I saved money from many trips to my granny's house in order to get it. Uh, five Irish punts he paid for it in the local shop. 30 years later, I can still hear the squeal of the tires and a seemingly uncontrollable game. <laughs> <laughs> Algbrush says, definitely Gaza's Super Soccer. It came with my Amiga 500 and was a second-hand backpack, and Gaza was definitely the turkey uh, of the bunch with a change of perspective when you get to the goal ends of the pitch, rendering your control direction suddenly flipped by 90 degrees. No good. Oh, that was really one I should have read out. It's it's Gaza, who is a very well-known oh. footballer. <laughs> no, but I like it. Totally we'll unknown to me. <laughs> <laughs> Clara Dweller says, Black and White by Peter Molyneux. Hyped beyond the stars by articles in PC Gamer magazine. And when it was delivered, it was all a load of rubbish. Devolution says, was so excited for a home port of Street Fighter 2. Unfortunately, it was, I bought it for the Amiga 500. Enough said. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Yeah, I had it on the Amiga 500. Disc swapping, disc loading, and a single fire button. It wasn't oh. a good experience. <laughs> <laughs> okay, our next one is from Bigfoot651, Nightmare on the ZX Spectrum. It says, I was a huge fan of the TV series. However, I could never get out of the first room in the game. Uh, I think you had to dig a hole to get under the door. It's, I can't remember now, but yeah, stuck mm. on the first level. It's not yeah, value for money. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Kun Mong says, uh, I, uh, even though he was mostly a pirate, he did purchase some games, and one of the games he did was Sword of Sodan. Not a good game of all. I definitely didn't get far before giving it up and firing up another game, probably one of his uh, less official discs. <laughs> <laughs> Our man Duncan from Amigos Gaming says the dream of an arcade racer on the CPC. And yes, he's gone for Outrun again on the Amstrad CPC. He says, played it recently. It's not as bad as I remember, but it was a definite letdown back then. The one redeeming yeah. feature I will add of uh, Outrun on the CPC is that it came with a second cassette if you bought the full price version with the arcade soundtrack on. It was oh, worth it for that. Yeah. Absolutely. What a, what a, what a plus. Uh, Mud GTS says the worst was Poltergeist for the TRS-80 color computer. Imagine ET, but twice as stupid. I'm going to take issue with that, Mud GTS. We reviewed Poltergeist on the Coco Show, and it is nowhere near as bad as ET. It's not a great game, but it's not the dirt worst. Asian Cyberman says, Driver, I have very little patience and never made it out of the training car park section. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Uh, Critical Kale says, some football game for the C64, but I can't recall its name. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he says, the ref looked like a, 
Oh, I I don't know. I don't know what D E B I L is. I don't that know what yellow, that is. Yeah, no. <laughs> and that and, and that yellow and red cards were handed out like candy on Halloween. Halloween, so bad. Super Cruiser Five Thousand says Frank Bruno's boxing for the C sixty four. It was hyped, but was expletive. Um, mm. Very much like Frank Bruno himself. <laughs> <laughs> And finally, I walk freely, says Rocket League, because it overtook Kerbal Space Program as my most played game on Steam. Ashamed. All right, so next week, Neil, and again, if you are listening right now and you'd like to contribute to our question of the week, head on over to our subreddit where you will see this post stickied. Uh, What is next week's question, Neil? Well, I'd like to continue on the thread of those memories and experiences I had of early arcades. So the question is, what was your favorite arcade back in the day and what do you remember about it? So if you can, try and give us um, a one or two sentence answer. Go to a new paragraph and then elaborate as much as you like to share with other people. But just to help us read them out, one or two sentences is perfect. Thanks for listening to This Week in Retro. Join our show subreddit to contribute your favorite news stories. And if you really enjoy our show, then visit coffee.com forward slash This Week in Retro. That's ko-fi.com forward slash This Week in Retro to put a tip in the jar. Help us spread the word about the show by telling a friend, leaving us a review on your podcatcher of choice, and subscribing to the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. We'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.